It seems a pity, said Rudge, to bother to find complicated explanations where there's a simple one handy. And this story is anything but simple explanation. Stick around to hear tea puzzles, train puzzles, Wolford switches, and more on Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER 107.3. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour. Thank you to Paul Meter for these lovely tunes going underneath me here. We're here with Flex Herds and a special guest today, Sean Britton. G'day. G'day, From Flex. 2SER's very own daily program. We are on the last stretch to retire the floating admiral from his service. Herds, this entire story has gone right round the riverbend and you've been kept... Uh, held at bay by that. Where look, I'm ready to bring it back on course, and by back on course, I mean <laughs> talk about how ludicrous this novel is. You've thrown me not one, but thirteen or eighteen curveballs, depending on where you're reading this, and it is it's insane. It it was very clear that none of the authors had explicitly communicated which part of the story they were actually meant to be doing, right? Mm. Other than the introduction, the conclusion, the prologue, and the first couple of chapters. Basically, no one really progressed the story other than throwing in a bit more evidence. It took until, like, the very last chapter for someone to go, like, oh, crap, we need to wrap this whole thing up. So the final chapter by Anthony Barkley is, like, nearly a third the length of the entire book, and it's one chapter. Yeah. It's interesting to see all the different characters that are written by all the different authors, but they're all only in there for one scene or are barely relevant or come back and suddenly are relevant, like... It's all over the place. But as we say, that was part of the the design. It was an experiment to do between just a couple of friends. Just going to say, it's yeah. just one of those um, classic murder mystery things where every single witness needs to be as unhelpful as possible. <laughs> they need to uh, lie about what they're doing. They need to do this. They need to do that. Um, and then come up with a second story and a third story. And at the end of it, when they're all innocent, it's like, why did you, why did you do that? Like, mm. yeah. why did you not just be straight with us from the get-go? then there would be no game. Exactly. There'll be no story. There's a reason we spoke to a professor of game design last <laughs> week about this, because it's it's not a piece of fiction that you read to have a story. It's a piece of fiction that you read to have a game. Yeah. I think the other thing that really clearly set out to me, the fact that this story had such a unplanned nature of its structure, was the fact that in Chapter 9, we get the introduction of Superintendent Hawksworth and Major Twyfit. They're two characters who really do very little for the story, but they're brought in clearly towards the latter end so that we have something to work towards. For sure, for sure. That's the fun part, is crazy characters, is one-off characters you can just throw in on a whim. I think that the closing passage is where we get Walter coming in and the interrogation with him and then the switch out with Wilfred. Superintendent Hawksworth and Major Twyfe in that scene really served to be the audience's vessel in that scene, to be <laughs> as utterly bewildered as we, are, we were by the switch. And I really did enjoy that they were a little bit self-aware in how they delivered that. There was I a couple that was of nice uh, switcheroos, of course, with the reporter, as you mm. say, the reporter being brought in. Hey, wait, it's not you. And then uh, the switcheroo between the poison that he decided to take. Oh, oh well, it wasn't actually poison, but he, he died anyway. Yeah. He just uh, it, died of nothing. Yeah, he just it's, thought it was going to happen. The perfect ending, honestly, for a book where we're, we're writing one chapter after the other, compounding on the next. The final chapter obviously has to make it so that no one can write anything else. We found the culprit. They've died. That's the end. There is no more final conclusion. 
<laughs> yeah, I also did like the the kind of audacity that it took Anthony Berkeley to come in because like all of the preceding four chapters authors had thought it was Walter as the journalist. Like everyone had clued into that. Then Anthony Berkeley comes in and is like, well, yes, but how about I just don't? <laughs> like I think it was pretty obviously the solution that a lot of people were leaning towards, but that was what Berkeley thought was the more entertaining solution. And I think that as little sense as it may be made, it also made that final scene a lot more than just an interrogation. This is who it is. All right, we're out of here. Next book. He just wanted to surprise us, you know? Mm. I feel like you could almost just keep writing more and more chapters and make it more and more convoluted if you really wanted to. It was probably convoluted enough as it was. I remember one of the uh, earlier chapters saying the theories were getting more and more disparate or something. I thought it was a cute little lampshade hanging. I mean, as we were talking about in last episode, uh, both with Simon, Brett, and amongst ourselves about Mm. Ronald Knox's chapter, Mm -hmm. I think that there was definitely a a lot of tongue-in-cheek going on towards the tail end of the story. Just throw out the train puzzle, please. (laughs) I don't (laughs) want to think about trains anymore. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that a bit more in the last section. Yeah. Um, But the other thing I really wanted to bring up was just just China and and Hong Kong. Like, you Mm. obviously caught on to this pretty early, Ben, Mm -hmm. that... Hong Kong appeared in the introduction and then just nowhere for most of the rest of the book. Yeah. That entire lead up towards getting a culprit that wasn't present in the first arc of the story Mm. um, was definitely definitely a tough point for me about whether I loved or hate this story mm-hmm. because as we've spoken about a lot on this show, we we love our dear Ronald A. Knox and his Decalogue, one of which the rules is, and we'll throw Simon Brett up because we love him as well. It is important that the actual perpetrator is introduced fairly early in the book. Which he was not! He was Well, he was mentioned, but he wasn't shown. He didn't yeah. show up until way later, and that is not okay. I was a little bit confused, I must say, with the prologue. Whether it, I, I was coming towards the end of the book, and I'm kind of thinking, Hong Kong is going to be the key to the whole thing, which mm. ultimately we know it was, or it is going to be completely and utterly irrelevant. I mean, mm. I read the prologue, um, you know, as you would with a normal book. I didn't quite understand how it fit in at first, but I was like, okay, well, you start with the prologue, you read the prologue, and you get on with the story. And, yeah, I was definitely at the point where it's like, that is going to be either the whole mystery revolves around Hong Kong or it just means absolutely nothing. Yeah, I think that that kind of leans into one key problem that the book had, which is that it had just a lack of classical evidence. Yeah. You know, every time we tried to introduce a piece of evidence, like the key in the bottom of the boat just ended up being practically Ignored. ridiculed by all of the authors, <laughs> yeah. which was which was hilarious and I really loved it, but obviously lent nothing to the mystery. And then even Superintendent Twyford, sorry, Superintendent Hawksworth and Major Twyford uh, ended up basically ridiculing Rudge for saying like, well, you have no hard evidence. This is all just hearsay. I found it very interesting that almost all of the authors picked either uh, Walter or Wilfred as their their, like end of the day culprits. But I can't say that I've solved everything, but I had a great time doing it. (laughs) Yes, I promised you, Herds, at the start of the book that I would award you... (gasps) Three points if you yes. could get Agatha Christie's solution. Which, which I, I didn't. You definitely did because not. Because it was insane. It was and nobody absolutely could get insane. It. Nobody could possibly ever guess the Agatha Christie solution. It's impossible. Except one. Oh, oh, my goodness. What? Has he done it? <laughs> Who's that? The mighty Sean Britton himself. Yeah, look, I'm not going to say um, I picked exactly what she was going for, but I did have a skim through the alternate endings uh, that Agatha Christie, or th- that I all put forward in Agatha Christie's. I thought it was going to be a cross-dressing killer. I didn't know quite how it was going to work out, uh, but Christie's chapter, she mentions the dress over and over again, the white dress being seen 
and uh, describing the character, obviously, as big, broad girl, long arms. Yeah, I, I, when I was going through, I mean, I was the veteran here, so I went through ahead mm. of everyone else. I pretty much picked every author's solution, mostly down to culprit and a slight bit on their method, but Christie's just... Goodness me, Sean, I don't know. Like, looking back on it now, I can definitely see those those passages you mentioned there, but mm. that just went straight over my head. I'm, I'm yeah. very impressed. We were told that the Christie's answer was worth the price of admission. I don't know if that's true, but it was certainly something spectacular. Yeah, I think it definitely was it, kind of that old-fashioned British humor mm. where it's like, ah, oh, this is a goofy solution. You know, the cross-dressing killer, of course, it's hilarious. <laughs> Makes so much sense. <laughs> but... I, I don't know if I'd say that was worth the the price of admission alone. Mm. Yeah, it was really fun getting to go through this novel as a whole, though. I, uh, I'm i still, like, not entirely... I enjoy a novel with more of a cohesive story, I feel, especially when the culprit ends up being someone who's just kind of popped up at the end of the novel. They weren't, like, introduced in the early chapters, but hey, we're trying to get, you know, a dozen or so authors, maybe more, into the same room together and just making one chapter after another it's difficult to kind of get that cohesive story going. I thought it was a little bit bizarre myself. Yes. Yeah. The ending where it's uh, suddenly it's this guy that was introduced about midway through the book. It's not even being there. He was mm. just like, we want to talk to him midway through the book. And then the last couple of chapters, it's like, Hey, uh, then it was this guy. And he was in, <laughs> uh, he was in China. Um, yeah, that happened. Yeah. He was the mastermind. Apparently either way, we're going to keep <laughs> Sean around and we're going to be talking with him about writing stories because this man is an author. Even if he doesn't tell you often enough. You're listening to Death of the Reader. You're listening to Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour, and we are here once again with the almighty host of the Friday Daily and author in his own right, whose book I have not gotten far enough through and I still feel incredibly guilty, (laughs) Sean Britton. Uh, Absolute pleasure to be here. Now, Sean is an author of many a book and many a book to come. I wanted to sit down and talk with you, Sean, because you've written a lot of pulpy action books Mm -hmm. and, you know, visceral stories about fights happening and vampires and heads being lopped off and what it feels like to have a head thrown at you. Ah, yes, that was one of my, uh, the reviews from one of my latest books. Yes. Uh, Never read a description of what it's like to be hit with a severed head. Indeed, indeed. Now, I wanted to kind of compare this to The Floating Admiral, which we've been talking about, which it's a story that suffers because it's a puzzle game that struggles to fit in character. And for you, as an author of pulpy action fiction, you have to have kind of a similar experience, I'd imagine, about trying to fit in those character moments when the heart of the book is really just how it feels to be hit with the flying head. <laughs> uh, as you say, yeah, the uh, the floating admiral and a lot of murder mysteries like that, obviously very, very cerebral. Uh, when I was sort of first got into writing, you kind of think about what kind of writer you want to be. Fitting character around something that, as you say, is very spectacle-based, character-based, action-based, I should say. Uh, Fitting character into that kind of thing. You're just going to have a really good idea, I think, of who your characters are and how they would react in Mm. certain situations. Uh, One of my tricks, and I think it's probably a pretty standard trick for a lot of people, is you write down like a profile of who this character is. You have a really good idea of who they were growing up, what kind of experiences have shaped them and all that sort of thing. And then you never mention that to the the audience. You never really bother to put that down on the page. Uh, but instead, it just sort of feeds through their actions, feeds through their bits of dialogue, feeds through the 
things you have to say. I mean, one of the series I've been working on lately is the uh, Kill Switch series, mm. which takes place in this reality TV uh, game show of the future. And that has some 30 characters in it because there's 15 teams of two mm. involved in this game. And some of them are reduced to absolute stereotypes. I mean, that's kind of the joke with a lot of them as they're uh, reduced to fairly obvious stereotypes. But some of them you want to flesh out a great deal before you behead them or shoot them or mutilate them in some way, shape or form. I think that's actually uh, part of the fun of it. You don't want to fall in love with your characters either. You actually want to develop a character that you know what terrible thing's going to happen. It's... It's a waste in some ways. You are wasting these characters. Uh, but at the same time, you want to flesh them out. And that's uh, that kind of sense, yeah. Yeah, I always hear that kind of approach referred to as the character Bible. Mm. Um, so you make a note of everything that the character has. And it's more, it's it's less of something to use to write the story and more of something to check against when you've written it to make sure that the character's actions are matching it. It's like a, a hidden faith for the character to have to their own self. Mm. I would almost say, um, rather than checking against what the story is, it kind of inspires the mm. story. So I'm um, I'm not exactly a planner or somebody who starts off with a total blank slate. I kind of do a little bit of both, but it just feels to me the characters' uh, actions are kind of natural. If you've got a fairly good idea of what they are and who they are before you actually start writing, then their actions kind of determine themselves as you are writing them, and you don't necessarily know what they're going to do next or how they're going to uh, to get to the places you need them to be. Yeah, I know, Herds, you and I were talking a fair bit about Inspector Rudge and how his character changes as we get through the floating admiral. Mm. And I think that uh, the way that he develops as a character, he'd definitely be a character that I would say didn't have a character Bible going through. No, there were no dot points. There were no notes passed between the authors. You were just given, this is what we've written so far from these chapters. And that's all you had to work with. Um, I found, though, that uh, it was interesting watching Rudge kind of come up against other characters and see how he reacted to them. I find that my my most interesting kind of moments when I'm when I'm reading or I'm you know writing you know little notes and things myself of interesting characters when you have them butt heads you have two characters with their own little bibles or their own drives and they they meet a, an obstacle you know a witness has been interrogated or someone throws a severed head at you um, <laughs> and you got these characters with these very different personalities and seeing how they clash would be very interesting. Um, Sean, do you have much experience doing that sort of thing? Well, just thinking you know, as you say with um, Rudge. This was obviously, you know, it was a team effort. It was this game between yeah. all the different writers. And there certainly were uh, some character inconsistencies between, I thought, some of the main ones as they're gradually introduced in terms of what Rudge does. Well, Rudge is very much just like, I'm a policeman. How dare you say that? You know, he's yeah. like kind of trying to bring in this voice of authority again and again. And, um, you know, whether you kind of anthropomorphize him almost, you, you sort of uh, empathize to the point where you are installing character traits within mm. him, you still don't necessarily know what he is. He's very much um, kind of a blank slate. And yeah, mm. I actually um, uh, quite like writing some stories where it isn't necessarily character driven, where it is the actions happening to the character rather yeah. than the character driving the actions. I actually quite enjoy that. So that would kind of be. Uh, my area of, uh, of uh, experience yeah, sure. with that one. It's kind of, it is a bit of a blank character that things are happening to rather than being driven to him. Yeah. I mean, you could replace Raj with a, a police badge and like a little, little you know, tag that says, hello, I am cop, tell everything. <laughs> and I think you would have about the same character. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, the other question I'd have for you, Sean, is you've obviously written a, a few series and sequels. How do you approach 
keeping those characters consistent when you've had, you know, periods of months or months or years between writing those stories, you mm. know, obviously you've changed in between writing those stories. And how do you make sure that those characters still keep the same heart? I know a lot of people had a similar complaint with like Luke Skywalker in the latest iteration of Star Wars mm. and how he felt very different to his original self from the original trilogy. Mm. Uh, you know, it's easier for me actually because a lot of my characters are dead. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> no pressure uh, then. Yeah, though you uh, you might kick off the sequel, and yeah, with a whole whole sort of new cast of people. But yeah, it's it isn't actually a really interesting idea in terms of writing a sequel, writing a series. I mean, I'm only sort of got one series out at the moment, but it's been uh, kind of a reoccurring thing to me. Mm. And uh, people grow, people change to such an extent that you kind of. It can't keep a character entirely consistent while you can't let them lose the core of who they are either. I'm, I'm, totally unpublished work that I'm working on at the moment is, an, in fact, a sequel. The first one is is unpublished. Is, the this, is this an inside scoop this for Death of the Reader? This is Great a, news. <laughs> it's probably a long way off because I actually want to write a few books in this series before I do anything with it. But um, the character you know, changes over the, the first book quite a great deal. Uh, mm. The beginning of the book, he is... Um, I wouldn't say broken necessarily, but certainly somebody who is accepting of what he perceives is right in the world. Mm. Uh, well, not right in the world, but just the way the world is. And over the course of the book, he is broken out of that in some ways. But mm. then at the very end, he is also somewhat both victorious and broken yeah. by his experiences. Bringing that into the second book, it is almost the difficulty of what goes on after the climax of the movie. Yeah. You know, after you've had this big moment where you've destroyed the Death Star or you've gotten rid of the ring in the uh, in the Mountains of Doom, what happens next yeah. to that character? You've been victorious, but the experience in some way has broken you. And that's uh, trying to keep to that core of the character. What were his core values but how has this actually affected him? Yeah, and you don't want to invalidate the you know the progression that occurred over the last book. Otherwise, why write the first book in the first place, right? Mm. Um, you have to find new ways to challenge the character. And and I know I'm not the expert here, but uh, I've read a fair number of series where the the solution to you know we've just we've defeated the the great evil monster, and now we're going to fight another great evil monster. Mm. And it's going to be another story about how to to learn to like trust other people or, you know, we're going to, we're going to get the magic sword or we're going to enchant again or whatever the story may be. And they just re repeat the same story beats, repeat the same kind of development. Yeah. It almost is. Uh, and like, I don't want to sort of give too much away on a series that, like I say, is probably, <laughs> yeah, probably a good few years from any kind of publication. Um, but yeah, it is kind of thinking about, well, you've just had the biggest experience of your life. You've just had the biggest climax of your life and it's left you, like I say, you were victorious, but you were also broken by that experience. Yeah. Where do you go next? Because you can't just go, well, let's go defeat the next dragon. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. But at the same time, you defeated one dragon. There's a whole bunch of dragons out there. Let's well, can you, can you leave those, can you morally leave those dragons or, or these baddies out there continuing to do what they do? Um, you know, when you have proven in some way that you are capable of mm. defeating it once. Fair enough. I mean, you always just fight two dragons for the sequel, and then that's, that's, a, that's a completely different story. Yeah, I mean, one thing we spoke about earlier on the show was the 12 steps of the hero's journey or the hero of a thousand faces mm. and how you can use those structures to build up something that's still unique even if it uses this, the same core elements. And I think that approaching character development in that way is also a useful, uh, a, a useful approach. 
when you talk about, you know, how do we go on to the next challenge once you've had this defining moment in your life? That's why in the 12 steps of the hero's journey, the last step is that they can't go back and fit in where they mm-hmm. were. And I think that finding interesting ways to integrate that part of the circle is one of the things that I... Uh, I am most fascinated by. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge lover of tropes. I'm a huge lover of the hero with a thousand faces. I, you know, they say there's nothing uh, new under the sun, and certainly you can fit just about any story into a fairly narrow set of um, fields if you are kind of so inclined. And I think it's something that is, you know, like we were talking about this um, this floating admiral is so so very trope heavy in and of itself. And there are a lot of stories out there that are very very trope heavy and. It's not a bad thing, you know. It is about how you use these tools rather than, you know, well, let's throw the whole toolbox away. Mm. Yeah. Well then, Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. We're going to boot you out of the studio <laughs> and we're going to talk about how fair we think this puzzle is and also unveil what our next book is. So you oh stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader. You're listening to Tour CR 107.3. This is Flex and Herds on Death of the Reader. We're going to be taking a deep dive into the drink where the water is clues and we're slowly drowning in them. We're talking astrology, tea, and the Walford bait and switch. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the first thing we should address is the fact that this story has in total nine different solutions. Excellent. Just the number of solutions that I want to be finding when I have 10 minutes every week to try and nail them down. That's like one minute per solution if I really wanted to, like, nail it. Um, yeah, I, I've come to thinking about this sort of like an astrology uh, reading. I <laughs> Like, whichever solution you come to be, you know, the most like, uh, it's, it's just going to tell something about your character, <laughs> uh, which I... Was pretty happy. With. I was I was wondering where you were going with that, and I'm I'm sold 100. <laughs> this story is murder mystery astrology. Yeah, it's a way to tell you know if you want your loved one, if you want to know what your loved one is really on about, get them to read the story, and if they're with the the Dorothy explanation, oh, uh, the Dorothy Elsoy's explanation, where we we analyze the brewing of tea like a psychopath. Whose idea? Like. <laughs> Dorothy's idea, clearly. I, I understand that this story was written from the perspective of a bunch of authors trying to have fun with their friends and, and you know, befuddle each other a little bit. Mm. But going to the extent of, ta- like, counting up and doing the maths on how long yeah. it takes to brew tea is just... It's excellent. <sighs> it's like uh, a number of paragraphs explaining, you know, this is how many minutes it takes to brew tea, and this is how many it takes to come up with a lie, and this is how much it takes to walk to the door. It's crazy. Um, it's exactly the kind of puzzle that I would never think of in my life because I, I despise time puzzles. I'm not a fan. I will say, I don't mind puzzles like this <laughs> if uh-huh. if they're an optional extra to add a little bit more to your proof. Mm-hmm. If they are necessary to solve the puzzle, oh yeah, then just get them out of here. The yep. same with the train thing. Like... That I don't want to keep track of the London timetable for trains as well as the Sydney timetable. It's already <laughs> difficult enough living in one city. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on top of that, you got to take, keep track of the tides and, like, which who's wearing which dress and where the frock is. we got enough clues to worry about without having to worry about numbers. Numbers are the bane of my existence when it comes to murder mysteries. I'd rather be focusing on character motivation and trying to puzzle that out um, that's just that's just how I am, I suppose. 
Um, I enjoy good drama. <laughs> yeah, and as as we said in the first section of the show, I don't think that this makes it a bad story because it's very open about what it purports to be. It's a puzzle yep. game between a bunch of authors. That's totally cool. Yep. But I do think that a lot of the criticism we've thrown at the book has sounded like we're saying that it's bad that it's complex, mm. which I don't think is accurate. No. I think, for example, if you take, just to pick the pop culture example, something like Game of Thrones, mm. right? Not to say that that does a perfect job of having a complex story. Well, I haven't seen it, but I'll take your word for it. But the complexities all add to the excitement as you slowly start to see the pieces unfurl in that show. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this one, the complexity is, oh, oh no, the tea and the trains and the flowers and yeah. the key and the do- uh, yeah. an the exam- tides. An example of a very well-laid clue was the um, the flower that was left on the riverbank by... Uh, by a Wilfred, um, which he leaves to draw suspicion upon himself for the second murder of, of the French maid, Mrs. Mrs. Mount. Um, that's a very well-laid clue because we have the conversation between Wilfred and Rudge about gardening and their their passion for it. It ties the inspector into the uh, the conversation and the drama and this important you know character point about Wilfred, something that he cares about. So when we see the flower laid on the riverbed, we know, oh, or in the riverbank, rather, we know, oh, that's Wilfred's flower. That's something that's pointing directly to him, or maybe someone's trying to frame him, but that's, you know, it's where it's supposed to lead you. Um, I like clues like that. Hey, what, speaking of rubbish clues, though, mm. when we get to the scene where uh, Mrs. Arkwright, Miss Mountsley, whichever name you choose, <laughs> is murdered, we very clearly have Walter, the, the reporter, mm. in the house, present, nervous, upset yep and when we get down to the initial explanation where it's like yes he murdered her and then posed as the reporter who had arrived there early to set the scene uh so that he could escape unnoticed right and that that felt fine reading it yep but then he's like no it was it was sir wilfred denny and he merely snuck around until he got the opportunity to escape but it's like what and nobody saw him yeah Foreshadowing! It's, it's one of those surprises for the sake of surprise. That's that's kind of the fun thing. Uh, that's why it's the bait and switch of, of Wolfred because Wolfred and, and Walter, and this is something that I picked out, um, once again, not so good with specific culprits, but something that I figured out pretty quickly was that the murderer couldn't be someone who was tied up, you know, very intrinsically with the different puzzles. If it was an intended solution... I would have been incredibly frustrated with it, but if you read it as a commentary on yep. how much of a mess the story has been, it I think it improves it a little bit. I would argue even that that, that sort of moment, if I were if I were writing this murder mystery, you know, as the established author that I am, you could have <laughs> that be a moment where uh, he realizes that it's Walter, but that Wilfred has like like would lose less, you know, that sort of that sort of argument. That's the sort of moment that you could have in that story. Um, he goes, oh well. Walter has so much to live for, but Wilfred, he's got nothing. They're both just as guilty, just about, you know, who held the knife. Um, That's the sort of moment that you could have. That was definitely where I thought it was going to go right at the end. I think the other thing we should definitely address is the solutions themselves. (laughs) You know, we've spoken about Dorothy L. Sayers and her absolute madness. I will say, though, I was very happy that on this astrology chart that Knox uh, turned out to be a Lear. (laughs) <laughs> That's my favorite part. The author that I got the closest to with my my assessment of Nettie Ware was Knox, and his reasoning was the same as mine. Um, none of these other characters have been introduced in the early part of the novel. He says the first five chapters in this, which is interesting because I don't think I've ever seen that him explicitly state uh, a chapter number in any of his other works or that I've read, certainly. Um, 
But he says Nettie Webb must be the culprit because he's the first person in the book. He has, you know, the means to get out of the boat. Um, so it's probably him. Yeah, I was not surprised at all that you got very, very, very close to Knox because that's yep. the angle that we've been approaching murder mysteries for for yep. going on two years now. Yep. And I don't think that it's a bad approach to have. I do think that those structures are defined in their breaking. And I think mm. that this novel very much goes to show that. I was going to say, yeah, I think that if anything that this novel has shown me, it's that going forward, reading other authors' works, um, this is the sort of thing that I have to expect and that we all have to expect because no author has the same idea of what a murder mystery should be. It's a genre that kind of broadly pulls these stories together. But um, you can even have these authors, you know, friends, all from Britain, all hanging out at dinner at the dinner table, you know, talking on the same roof. But they have these wildly different ideas about, you know, what constitutes good foreshadowing and what speed you can brew tea at. Um, (laughs) I had a wonderful time. I'm glad that I got to read through it. Never again. Uh, and it's a shame that at the end of the day, the the inspector, you know, he didn't get Nettie Ware. Nettie Ware got away, sadly, uh, that his rube uh, Wilfred was taken in his stead. It's such a shame, really. But hey, maybe next time, maybe when Nettie strikes again. Uh, are we writing <laughs> we'll that him. story? Is that going to be our first book? I think when that Nettie has to be. Again? All right. Nettie strikes again. But you um, know what we need to read next? I do. I don't. I do. We will be reading a lovely little novel. We're going back to 1866 for the Le Rouge case by Emile Gabriel. Gabriel. It's French. Look, I don't speak French, (laughs) but we're going to learn French. You better have have that French fixed by next week. For those of you who made no promises. For those of you who aren't familiar, Emile is one of the authors who inspired pretty much everyone in early European detective fiction. The main one is uh, Sherlock Holmes. Though we'll talk more about how much his inspiration kind of flowers and continues, I think, on the next episode. I think it'll be really fun. This has been Death of the Reader on 2SER 107.3. I'm Flex. I'm Hertz. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time with the LaRouge case. We're out of here. Bye.